This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, listeners. This is just a quick update to this bonus episode. This is normally an episode that I would only put out for patrons. This is our monthly Brewers Roundtable of May, where we talk to Rob DeSaul of A Natural History of Beer. And I just wanted to have everyone have a chance to listen to what those roundtables are like. Our next roundtable is actually a week from Thursday. We're going to be talking to Brian Rabe of Low Oxygen Brewing. And I will put a link to that event in the show notes to this episode. So if you're on your podcast player, just open it up. Look, scroll down and you'll see a link to the website and you'll be able to sign up for this month's. It is completely free for you to attend. But if you're a patron, I actually take the recording of this, turn it into a bonus episode and you get that monthly. But any listener for this podcast can attend. And so I just wanted to put that out there and let people see what these roundtables are about and if it's something you would want to go to. So once again, thanks for being a listener and enjoy this bonus episode. This is our May episode for our Homebrewers Roundtable series. This month, we talked to Rob DeSaul, author of A Natural History of Beer, and he's a curator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Rob spent a lot of time traveling and doing a ton of research for this book, and we talked to him about it today on Homebrewing DIY. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on the show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. 
All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the cruising ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast. And that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruising. They are no match for scrubber duckies and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast, and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing, gadgets, contraptions, and parts. This podcast covers it all. On today's show, we're talking to Rob DeSalle, he is the curator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He's also the co-author of the book, A Natural History of Beer. He's also the co-author of the book, A Natural History of Wine. And he's working on a new book called The Natural History of Spirits. And as you will find out later in today's episode, he might even write the book, A Natural History of Marijuana, which I would read all of those books gladly. That being said... Today is an episode for our patrons, and this is our my way of saying thank you. We do these monthly Brewers Roundtable, and anybody can attend them, but I actually record these events, put them together in a podcast, and release them to patrons only. So if you want to join us for the Brewers Roundtable, just go to homebrewingdiy.beer and click on the Events tab, and you can sign up and join one live. So let's just quickly jump right into today's episode where we're going to talk to Rob DeSalle about a natural history of beer. 
we're, we're natural historians. We work at a at a museum in New York City, and I'm a I'm an, a, an animal biologist, and Ian is an anthropologist, and um, we did a, a an exhibition a hall together in, in the museum on human human origins, and we got to know each other and got to be pretty good friends. Uh, before that, we didn't like each other because we worked on the same thing, and we had a little bit of controversy about about who was right and. Um, he, he, uh, he and I didn't get along, but we did this, we did this show and, and we realized we had a lot more in common than we thought we did. And, uh, when we would meet to talk about how to do things in, in the, in the hall, uh, we'd always have a beer, um, or, or a glass of wine. We, we also wrote a book on the natural history of wine, which came out before the beer book, but it turned out that, you know, he's a, he's a big, uh, enophile and I'm a, a, a big beer beer lover. And so we, we thought to ourselves, well, this is really cool because when we drink beer together, we get all these great ideas about biology and about anthropology and about chemistry and about molecular biology. And so we decided, well, why don't we write a book? Um, when we did the wine book, we thought, well, why don't we write a book about um, biology, natural history through the lens of wine? And that worked. And so we thought, well, why not do it for beer? And so we did the beer book, and right now we're finishing a book on spirits, on dis- distillates. So um, we've pretty much gone through the gamut of, of uh, 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 alcoholic beverages that, that um, you can drink. And, and what we did was we uh, tried to bring in aspects of anthropology, culture, but also the biology and the chemistry and, and trying to make this stuff understandable um, but also telling the story through the the eyes of a uh, uh, through the lens of of beer, and so well, the best the most fun I had about with, with the book was uh, each chapter starts with a little vignette of us uh, drinking a beer that's relevant to the chapter, and so for <clears throat> most of the chapters, well, I think there were fifteen chapters in the book, and so we sat down and drank fifteen different kinds of beer. So, for instance, for um, the uh, a chapter on how beer affects your brain. Uh, we had a six pack of uh, hangover free beer from Spain. It's, I don't know if you guys know about this, but it's a beer that's made with sea salt. Uh, and it apparently, um, uh, we tested it and it didn't work because we had hangovers the next day, but, but uh, it, it apparently is supposed to, salt is, is very important in your physiology when you're drinking. Um, and and so with the salt, it's supposed to uh, decrease the effect, the swelling effect on your brain and then keeps the headache away and all that other stuff. We actually had two six packs of it and we got really crocked and woke up the next day with bad hangovers. So I was not it didn't work. So uh, but that's and so what we do at the beginning of the chapter is we describe this this experience we would have with 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 the different beers. So on the chapter on hops, we found uh, a, a beer called, I don't, you guys probably know this Sierra Nevada's Bigfoot. Um, it's uh, got a, I believe it's got about a 300 IBU. So it's really, really hoppy and bitter. And we tried that and, you know, talk about how, how, how that works. But the, 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 the real fun part about beer and writing the book was just interacting with the, my co-author. He's, it, it was just fun. And I think that's the whole, the whole um, thing about beer um, if you drink it wisely and drink it judiciously, um, it's a very social, a very social um, uh, beverage and one that just 
is the perfect thing to be drinking when you're when you're talking uh, in no shop or when you're talking sports or when you're talking this or that. And uh, through the ages, it's it's been more important through the ages because uh, in the past, the only kind of liquids you could drink were alcoholic liquids, because if you didn't, then you were going to get sick. If you drank the water, you were definitely going to get sick. You're going to get cholera or you were going to get some intestinal problem. And so beer in the past had been this thing that people drank to, to just drink. Children drank. Um, uh, uh, and and as, uh, you know, beer came along in, in our in our culture, um, it became more and more, less and less of a necessity, less and less of a way to keep from getting sick, to more and more of a of a of a way of of uh, just expressing ourselves and and of of easing our way in social situations. So, it, it, it's the perfect beverage, I, I think. I, I'm I'm I, I I gained a pretty good uh, uh, respect for wine in writing the wine book with Ian, but. Uh, I, I really think that that beer is the better of the two beverages, and and certainly after writing this this uh, spirits book, I think beer is is a lot better than than spirits. I I, I like spirits, and I like to taste them, but I love love tasting beer, and I love the experience of of a new beer of a, just something that I've never seen before. Um, a, a good example of that was uh, I was in Australia for a half a year uh, about a year ago. And I went to a bar in Brisbane, uh, which is a town, on, which is a big city on the uh, east coast north of Sydney. And I, I asked the guy, give me the strangest. I asked the bartender, give me the strangest thing you've got. So he says, I got, I got this got a perfect thing for you. And he pulled it out as a bottle of, um, of uh, Sauvignon Blanc mixed with ale. And, and he opened it and poured it. And he said, now, just check out the aroma. And I smelled it and it was just like the smelled like the rottenest cheese I've ever, ever smelled in my life. It was horrible. And, and I took a sip of it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so that, that, that adventure, that, that being adventurous with, with uh, uh, beer, I think you can be more adventurous with beer than you can with wine and with spirits. And, and, um, and then on top of it, of it all is the the home brew culture and the and the microbrew and nano brew culture is just just a wonderful thing. I mean it it brings people together. You forget about politics. You forget about sports teams. Or yeah, you argue about sports teams, but you forget about a lot of things. And home brewing is just the perfect thing for me. And I, that's what I I really like about all this stuff. So I probably talked a little bit too long there, but but it. I, I think you get get a sense for how much I like beer and how much uh, it means, uh, not only scientifically to me, because I can explain anything over a beer. <laughs> I mean, if you ask me any question about science, I can pick a beer up and start drinking it and relate the, the question in science to the beer I'm drinking. And it's just a it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's the best. <laughs> so cheers to everybody. I apparently need to get myself a beer. So after we open this up for questions, I, I'm going to run away and go grab one. I, I I have some some questions because when we did the interview and and I had just started reading the book and I was probably only five or six chapters into the book when we actually spoke. And, and a lot of the questions I had were geared around the chapters I had already read. 
there was a really really detailed chapter when you talked about the actual creation of beer that was highly scientific you guys dove into real like it, the the method of the book in each chapter has to do with a different facet of beer like you said yeah. and it even got highly highly tech this is not a book that's like <laughs> that that start it does start off you know anecdotal but then as you get into it it does get highly scientific when you talk about yeah. beer processes what did you guys do to like learn a lot of those scientific processes well we uh, um th those those more technical, hard to understand, probably poorly written chapters are mine. And the really fun ones are my co-authors. Um, but I was trained as a biochemist and I know all, all the reactions. I mean, you don't have to know that much about uh, biochemistry to know beer because beer is just a fermentation reaction. And, and um, also um, making sure that you've got um, um, some bitterness in it or some sweetness in, and it's just it's just a little bit of chemistry that's all it is and the trick is trying to explain it because um, you 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 have no idea how many times I've talked about the chemistry of fermentation and just looked at people in the audience and their eyes are just glass they're glazed over and they're just like I don't understand this and I don't care and in some ways they're right in some ways you can just put a black box over the fermentation reaction and you don't need to know that much about it but if you're a brewer you really do know a lot need to know a lot about that reaction because it it is everything everything to um your brew at the at the very end of of the of the story so you you have i mean if you know that sugar is part of the input into the fermentation process then you know why you put you put things that have sugar in them into your into your um, 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 mixtures at the very beginning, and you know why. Um, you know you're going to get a six point eight percent ale and not a five point five percent ale. Um, you know why because there's more sugar there, and you know why most beers don't go above 10, 12, 13, 14 percent because um, yeasts die at that ethanol concentration they they uh poison themselves with with the alcohol that they're making so knowing all these things um i, I you know i i think helps people who who brew also helps people who drink the stuff to understand what what went into it and a lot goes into it uh but you're right um the 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 reviews of the book that that have been a little bit harsh have been <laughs> I've been the ones that criticize the those chapters that are a little bit too scientific, but you know if you if you take the time to read through them, it's it's kind of like when you were in high school, right? And you're in a chemistry class, and you had to learn, um, you know what what chemical bonds were, and if you were if you were distracted that day, you probably didn't learn it. But if you sat down, at least with me, if you sat down and studied it, studied, studied, you got it eventually. And and I think that's what that's what we were trying to do there. Um, the, the, again, this, the book is more about beer than it is anything, but it's about science through that lens of beer, um, which can get fairly cloudy if you drink too much, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> well, the lens, I, the lens can get, get fairly cloudy. 
Well, as a as an avid homebrewer, obviously the science really speaks to me. It's something that th- those were the chapters I really dove into, because even when you read a lot of books about homebrewing, they may just ex- they they try to explain things at a, at a at a high level. Even when they talk about yeah. the act of fermentation, they'll say things like, "Hey, you start with the sugar and you have a scale," but they never talk about you know what are the actual biotransformation processes that happen from converting yeah. she- sugars to ye- to alcohol. And yeah. so, uh, and you guys dive deep into that as well. Uh, what would you say was more of, a, more of a black box to most most people, and in, in most books that that talk about beer and talk about breweries, it's a black box. And we tried to take the black box off, um, you know. And, and we 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 actually warned the reader that if you if you failed chemistry one hundred and one in high school, or or the chemistry is a reason why you didn't go to medical school, then you could skip the chapter and just go on to the next chapter and still be pretty happy. I'm sorry I interrupted. <laughs> Cold. Uh, oh, you're, you're, you're totally cool. Uh, another question I have is, where did you guys actually travel to, to do your study ah. for the book? <laughs> well, <clears throat> because New York has had a renaissance of, of, of uh, microbrewing, we hit every microbrewery we could hit in New York area. Um, uh, and, and, that got us to a lot of really cool places like Brooklyn Brewery. When we were researching the book, Brooklyn Brewery was still kind of a tiny, tiny outfit. And going across the, the um, Williamsburg Bridge into Brooklyn to get to the brewery, which is in, in Williamsburg, was, you know, we walked across, we got there and, and they, have a, they have a tasting room, which is, is, you know, your standard tasting room, but they have some of the most amazing beers in their tasting room that they don't put out on the market. And so it's really great going, going to a place like that. So all these breweries in, in, in the New York city area were really a lot of fun to go to. If we did it today, we'd have to visit three times as many breweries as we did three years ago, because there's just been an explosion of microbreweries here, here in New York city. Um, we also uh, went to California and and visited some breweries in California, but our favorite trip was to uh, Germany during Oktoberfest, and so we we went to uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Prague, uh, Czechoslovakia, specifically to taste pilsners, to taste the really really clear uh, pilsners uh, from from that area, and then to Nuremberg and Bamberg, which are two. Uh, smaller German towns that are are really famous for brewing. Nuremberg famous for uh, its its um, uh, lagers, and Bamberg famous for its uh, Rauchbeers, its smoked beers. It's the the, the birthplace of Rauchbier. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have ever had a, had Rauchbier, but it's just a stunning, amazing beer. It's just a and 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 to have it fresh from the tap in a in a, a cellar in, in uh, Bamberg was pretty cool. And then we headed down to Munich and did, did uh, Oktoberfest, which we thought was just going to be, you know, cliche-ish, you know, uh, just, yeah, we, we wanted to experience it. It's like, uh, um, you know, you, you, you want to experience Disneyland before, <laughs> before you die. Uh, well, we wanted to do Oktoberfest before we, we, we died. We're both very close to dying as a matter of fact, but we wanted to do that before and, we got there and there was nothing going on in the city of Munich. It was all in the, the uh, Oktoberfest grounds. 
and they have these huge tents. And I don't know, have either any of you guys been to Oktoberfest? Yeah, it's awesome. It's just amazing. You go in these tents and there are like 5,000, 10,000 people. The tent we were in was the, was the, um, oh, I've forgotten what, what the name of the tent was, but it was the tent where the locals went to it. We got tickets because I have a friend who's, who's a Munich, Municher, a Munchener, and, and he got, got his tickets. And, and it, this was just an amazing place. There's 10,000 people in this tent and they, they were, um, eating chicken and drinking beer and dancing on the tables. And, and, oh, it was just amazing. It, it was like not a cliche. It was a, a very, very cool experience for, for a beer drinker. Um, the other place we, we wanted to do, to go was Belgium to taste the Abbey Ales. Uh, um, we didn't make it. Um, we did make it through Brussels and in the, in the bar in the Brussels airport where we stopped, they had every, all of the 14 um, Abbey um, uh, approved ales. So we had all of the six or seven Belgian approved ales and a couple of, one of the French and uh, one of the, of the um, Dutch uh, 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 Abbey ales. So we almost hit the, hit the right place <laughs> at the right time at the airport. Um, but that, yeah, that, the, doing the research was really a lot of fun. Like I say, at the beginning of each chapter, um, we, uh, talk about a beer we, we, we taste that's relevant to the chapter. And that was as much fun as, as getting on an airplane and flying to Germany or flying to the West coast and tasting, uh, uh, uh Russian, Russian river, uh, brewery, uh, uh, beers and things like that. It's, it, it, it's a lot of fun, massive fun. I'd like to open it up to, you know, Ed, Ian, uh, if you guys have any questions for, for Rob here about uh, the book or just in beer in general, uh, I'd love to hear them right now. And I'm going to go grab a beer. (laughs) (laughs) I had a a question, um, especially since you've done a book on wine and then went to beer. What, what is your impression of the (laughs) cultural differences between for lack of a better term, wine drinkers and beer drinkers, because uh, as beer drink as beer drinkers, I think we are looked down upon by some of the folks that drink that oh, other yeah. beverage. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Here's here's a good example of that. Um, uh, I have uh, friends uh, who I talk to about this, and my wine drinking friends all looked at me and said, "What? You, you wrote a book about wine? You don't know anything about wine. You know nothing at all about wine. And, you know, I, I do know a little bit. I probably know more than they know. I'm not <laughs> going to tell them that. But my beer drinking friends would go, wow, that was really cool stuff you talked about. You're, you, you really know a lot about beer. And I'm like, I don't know that much about beer. But, you know, so th- th- there is this um, effete kind of... Uh, we know more than you know because we're wine drinkers and you beer drinkers don't really think about your beer. But I don't think most wine drinkers who feel that way have ever met a home brewer or, or have ever sat down and talked to a, a home brewer or a, a, a micro brewer or a nano brewer because, man, those you got we there, there's so much knowledge about um, taste and about alcohol and about reactions and and 
uh, all kinds of things that you need to know to be able to make beer, bottle beer, um, drink beer even. Um, you know, I think beer drinkers get a bad rap because like my father, who is a Midwesterner, um, he, he only drank Budweiser, you know, and, and I, in the seventies, when I was in college, I'd come home and I'd say, dad, there's this really great beer called Heineken and you should try <laughs> Heineken. And he goes, what's that? And I go, it's in a green bottle. And he goes, ah, crap. <laughs> I want my red, <laughs> red and black blue can. I want that. I said, but what do you, why do you like? Well, because I know what I'm going to get. And I think that's what the problem is with a lot of attitudes toward beer drinkers is that they, the, the people think that we're just simple Budweiser drinking goobers, you know, and we're not. There's a, there's a lot, a lot of sophistication to drinking beer and to making beer, especially. Wine, wine you could also say, well, okay, you got your winos who just drink really crappy wine. But most most wine drinkers are going to know the difference between a, a Sauvignon Blanc and a Beaujolais. You know, they're going to know the difference, or they're going to know the difference between a New Zealand Sauvignon and a South African Sauvignon. So they're going to know the differences, and and that I think gives them a little bit of a um, false intellectual um, confidence <laughs> because um, I. I it, okay, so so here's a cool cool thing. I it, I hope it's not too much of a non sequitur, but but here's a cool thing. So the studies have been done about wine to show what how what wines sell better. Okay, or what wines have better have better opinions from their from their drinkers. And um, taste has nothing to do with it. <laughs> you can you can trick wine drinkers into thinking they're drinking a ninety dollar dollar bottle of wine when they're drinking a $5 bottle of wine. And one of the things that is, is involved, or there's three, three things that are involved. One is the shape of the label on the wine bottle, believe it or not. If the shape of the label on a wine bottle is round, then that's less preferable than a square or a rectangular label, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, if a, if a, a uh, wine label has red, yellow, and green in lettering. That's less preferable than black and white. <laughs> and the real kicker, which is uh, why why this might not be a non sequitur, is that uh, wine drinkers prefer hard to pronounce wineries and wines <laughs> over simple to pronounce wines and wineries. <laughs> and so when you go to the when you go to the wine store and you see Beaujolais. Or you see Sauvignon Blanc, and and you see um, Peterson's Vineyard from uh, Charleston, North Carolina. You're going to pick the Beaujolais, or you're going to pick the Sauvignon Blanc, because simply because of the name. And there are some crappy Sauvignon Blancs out there, right? I mean, there's some really bad wine out there. There's some really so, bad Beaujolais out there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and so you know. I think it's I, I I I think because because of those things I think there's a bit of haughtiness that that um, is there. There's that famous 1970 wine tasting in France where they did a blind wine tasting of of uh, red wines um, in in France. It was the gold the gold medal tasting and some California wines were were entered into the into the contest. And because it was done blindly, 
the California wines won. <laughs> it was like a, a major slap in the face to the to the French uh, winemakers because they they thought, well, we're so we're, we make such great wine. How can an American wine be as good as ours? Well, it, it's because it's all about technique. That has nothing to do with with terroir, which is this concept of where the where the grapes are grown make it make the great wine. It's bullshit. It's all all about biology. It's really all about biology and about te technique and technology and making the wine. So, um, yeah, that irritates me. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I guess I talked like about ten minutes about it because it's so irritating. <laughs> is it? Is but, it been, yeah. I mean, did you, in the book? Did you you guys delved into some history stuff, right? So yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, beer is the working man's drink, and wine is the you know. The capitalist drink or something. I mean, that goes back centuries, right? Um, or is yeah, that just the impression uh, that I well, have? Well, um, depends on where you're from. In some countries, beer was the the main drink, and it was the drink that everybody considered to be the drink of the the drink of the um, uh, elite. Um, in some countries, wine was the drink of the elite. But there's some pretty crappy wine through history. The Romans were were well known for their crappy wine. <laughs> I mean, they would make really good wine and the nobles would get it, but they would make really crappy wine and everybody else would get it. And also uh, a lot of the wine made in, in Rome was laced with lead because they kept it in lead lead containers and that caused a lot of, lot of disease, but a lot of um, uh, disorders. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the beer is, is actually considered more controlled than, than wine. There's the Reinhardtsgebot in Germany, which is a law in the 1500s that said anything that's got barley, hops, and water in it is beer. Nothing else is beer. <laughs> and you don't hear that about wine. Um, wine is, is just tradition and, like I said, this stupid terroir idea. Um, terroir has nothing to do with the, the quality of a wine. It's just this made-up thing that that wine wine uh, makers have have thrown at people for for ages. Um, but yeah, yeah, there there is that haughtiness there, and it's it's irritating. It's very irritating because there are many more kinds of beer out there than there are wine. Um, if you if you try to um, look at the number of of well, here's a good indicator. The number of yeast strains that are used to ferment beer outnumber the number of wine strains that are used to ferment wine by four to one. So there are four, four, time, four times more yeast strains used in brewing beer, and they're so much more interesting. The wine yeasts are, are just really boring. They all look alike. They all pretty much do the same thing. You could take a, a, a yeast from, uh, from South Africa that... that uh, they use in making a Sauvignon Blanc and bring it up to France and and make a make a um, Bordeaux with the same yeast and it probably is going to taste the same. It, it it's just but with beer if you change your yeast you're screwed. If you if you're trying to produce something you know that you thought was really good and you change from a from a ale yeast to a Hey, buddy. If you change from an ale yeast to a to a, a pilsner yeast, you, your beer isn't going to be very good. Yeah, what do you want? Okay, okay, cool. okay. Thanks. 
<laughs> hey, he, that, he's that my is, agent. Uh, that's the that's the epitome of every video call I've had for the last three months. Right? <laughs> he's my he's my agent. He's my agent. He, he he also goes and get beers goes and gets beer for me. So he's he's really important in the house. You know? Trained. But yeah, that that yeast story that yeast story is really cool because there's a yeast that's now becoming in the region. You guys probably know about this: the crick yeasts, the yeast from uh, Scandinavia that are just amazing because they they can ferment a ton of stuff in two or three days at a really, really crazy low or crazy high temperature. They're just really active and they make fantastic beer. They make the best farmhouse beer I've ever tasted. And they're a newly discovered yeast strain. And there's, if you look at them genetically, they're so different from all the other yeasts that... <laughs> <laughs> they're so different from all the other yeasts that are out there that it's almost like um, like um, uh, wine yeast are almost more similar to other beer yeasts as they are to this crick yeast. So it's a weird, weird uh, animal, a weird, weird kind of a yeast that, that um, uh, brewers are using nowadays. And brewers are more experimental, too. That's what I love about, about brewing. Brewers are much more experimental. They're much more... Uh, uh, um, they have a higher probability of taking a chance and a winemaker will never take a chance. A winemaker wants, wants to approximate their, their product from year to year. But uh, I mean, yeah, you can say, yeah, Budweiser. Well, they, they make the same shit year after year. Coors makes the same stuff year after year, but the, I'm talking about craft brewers, craft brewers and home brewers who I think are the heart and soul of, 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 of beer, beer making nowadays. Um, they take, we take much more, many more chances and we have many more failures. I mean, I can't tell you how many gallons of beer I've poured into my backyard as fertilizer, um, you know, for, for a bush here or a bush there, but um, much more ex exploratory, much more adventurous. And beer drinkers, I think are very adventurous too. A wine drinker will get set on reds and they'll stay on reds and they'll, you know, they'll, and even though I'm on a hazy IPA kick right now in a month, I'm going to be on porters or I'm going to be on stouts or something else. And it's beautiful. <laughs> or I'll be on a Pilsner's. I'll be into Pilsner's. No, it's really great. And the differences between the beers that we taste are, are really succinct. They're much, much diff more different than the, the wines. I think the difference in the beers we drink are um, they're they're quantitatively different, and the difference between wines are qualitatively different. What I mean by that is that you just have these little variations in wine tastes and and wine differences. With beers, you can quantitate it. You can say, "Oh, that's ten times hoppier." <laughs> you can't say that with the wine. You can't say that's ten times uh, grapeier. No, you can't because it's all 14%. It's all, you know, and the alcohol range of beers is amazing too, which I think is so much fun. Um, I, when I was in, I, I keep mentioning Australia because I had such a great time there and the beer scene, the brewery scene there was amazing. When I was in uh, Australia, there was a brewery that I would go to. It was um, uh, conveniently only about a block away from where I was staying. Um either conveniently or, or sadly uh, about a block away from where I was staying. And they would serve this, this line of beers they call cluster. 
And as a cluster eight, cluster 10, cluster 12, cluster 14, the numbers referring to the alcohol content. And each one was made pretty much the same way from the same ingredients, but each one was, was um, uh, uh, jacked up with re respect to alcohol. And it was just beautiful tasting those, those things. I, I, I can't contain my, my excitement and my enthusiasm for beer and for, for the culture around it. And, and um, even though I've learned to drink wine um, and learned to, to um, uh, appreciate it in, in some respects, I, I don't think it's any, anywhere near as fun as beer. <laughs> so what's the oldest beer you've ever tried? Uh, depends on what you mean by oldest. Uh, if you mean the oldest uh, stored or aged beer, yeah. um, uh, uh, mm, probably uh, there's a, 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 a restaurant here in, in New York. I, I hope it's still open after all this crap um, uh, called uh, Gramercy Tavern. And they have one of the best uh, vintage beer um, collections if you ever get here and they're open you should go there because their vintage beer collection is amazing they had beers that were 25 30 years aged and i i i splurged one night and had one of those um but if you're talking about the oldest style of beer then i've had i've uh, brewed my own groot groot uh, i don't know if you guys know groot i, I know colt knows what a groot is but groot's a, a a beer that's brewed without hops and we brewed it the the classic way we used a recipe that was written in 1800 ad <laughs> and and it was fun it was fun it was hard to brew because it was an amazing amount of grain uh per um beer that you got at the end but it it, it made a pretty cool um it made a pretty cool brew and you add you add spices um as the uh hops um component and the spices tend to uh, do the the, the um, uh, killing of bacteria and and covering of bitterness of the of the of the uh, grain. Um, that's the oldest. However, I have had uh, beers from dogfish um, dog dogfish um, uh, brewery in uh, Maryland. Um, yeah, Maryland, Delaware, Maryland. Yeah, and they make some pretty old. They make some pretty old reconstructed beers that are very interesting, like Midas Touch. I you probably have had that, and Ninkasa. Uh, Ninkasa was the um, uh, queen. Or I think she was a queen who wrote down the first beer recipe, and it's a in it's a in a, a poem called Ninkasa's Song, and you can read through it. It's just, it's a beer recipe. It's pretty cool. Um, I've tasted those, and that's a that's a big. Uh, a big industry nowadays in, in brewing is reconstructing beers. There's a guy at, at the University of Pennsylvania uh, named Pat McGovern. He's affectionately known as Dr. Pat. And uh, Dr. Pat has uh, done all this really wonderful work on the origin of wine, the origin of beer, but he's also done this great work on uh, reconstructing recipes for beer. Um, and, uh, He's the person behind Midas Touch, which is supposed to be a 4,000-year-old uh, recipe. Nikasa is supposed to be about a 5,000, 6,000-year-old recipe. And they, there's recipes for beer um, out there that uh, you should just look for and try to replicate because they, they've got to be good. If somebody took the time to write them down and put them in a publication, they've got to be pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we could have much more fun with that. Yeah. Well, one of the things you talked about were like the ancient Etruscans or something like that. Was it at the beginning of your book where you talked about the ancient history of book beer and how the yeah. beer then wouldn't even be considered beer now? Uh, I no. think they were like communal and they had they were they were chunky and you had to drink them with a straw. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's these great uh, hieroglyphics of it, it, the Egyptians were pretty notorious for this. Um, because they didn't filter, of course, and, and uh, they would let the beer settle. They would let the, the sediment settle, and they would. There's this great, um, like I say, hieroglyphics of Egyptians drinking from straws about four feet long that would filter the grain out. Um, apparently, um, as you sucked on the straw, um, the gunk would come up the straw, but gravity would. Pull, pull it back down so that by the by the end of by the time the the stuff got to your lips it was all liquid and and no gunk and and so uh there's that and i think i really think that um even though groot groot that we made resembled beer and was uh sensed by uh, ian and i as beer um i think the groots that they made back in 500 600 a.d um probably didn't taste like like beer <laughs> it probably tasted really malty uh uh yeasty and really really bitter it probably was just um not very pleasant to drink um uh, uh i think the beers that that uh, uh like you said the beers that were made in in by the etruscans and by the sumerians and by the egyptians were if we had those today, we probably wouldn't recognize those as beer. We would probably recognize them as more like kava or something like that. You know, some uh, murky thing that had a taste to it. But you know, and and the thing you'd re you'd recognize the most is that you're you get a little tipsy after a lot tipsy sometimes after drinking <clears throat> drinking those kinds of things. So yeah, it's the the it's funny that um, beer has evolved so so much toward uh, um, hoppiness and and uh, um, you know, even the sours we were talking about earlier, how it's evolved to accommodate the tastes of, of people. Again, like I said, uh, a, a millennia ago, it was essential to be drinking some alcoholic beverage because if you didn't, you probably were going to be dead pretty soon. Water was just not good. <laughs> Kevin, Ian, you guys got some questions? Good questions so far. I love it. So did you, did you go to the UK? Uh, I'm sorry, did we go to the UK? Yeah. Yeah, no, we didn't. Um, uh, I love British beer, and, and I love um, – I hope this isn't a non sequitur, but it, it may very well be. British beers are so distinctive because of of Britain, and, and uh, uh, they're so different from, say, German beers or Czechoslovakian pilsners or lagers. They're so different, and the Brits and the and the Irish have gotten the, the reputation for drinking these heavy ale um, uh, uh, stout kinds of of beers, and the Czechs and the Germans and the Polish. 
get the reputation, the Serbs all get the reputation for drinking these light beers. But there's a reason for that. And the reason is that the water in Great Britain is much harder than the water in, in Czechoslovakia. So there's a town in Czechoslovakia called Pils, P-L-S, Pils, Pils. And it's got the softest water on the planet. Um, on, uh, they, they measure uh, water softness and hardness by the amount of, of minerals that are in the water. And this water is so beautifully pure that it's almost like it was distilled. And of course, the Czechs make this really light, beautiful, crisp um, Pilsner. And the Germans, who have soft water too, make this really these really beautiful, light, clear lagers. Um, and then they accentuate them with the hops that they put in to accentuate that clarity with the hops that they put in. Whereas in England, like um, um, uh, some of the rivers in England have uh, 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 hardness, 300 times the hardness of, of the water from the from Pils, uh, Czechoslovakia. And the Dublin River in Ireland is has a hardness of about 250 and... Uh, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, uh, Eaton on Trent or Trent on Eaton, uh, uh, the river there has a hardness of about 300. And so when you make beer from these really hard waters, you want to cover up the hardness. And so the style of making beers was dictated by the hardness of the water, which then dictated the impression of the world about British beer drinkers. You guys drink ales and you drink stouty stouty ales and you drink porters and you drink uh, the Irish drink their stout and and the Czechs and the and the uh, Germans drink their lagers and their hellas and their pilsners and um, it, it's a it's a really interesting kind of a cultural kind of a thing that you think is cultural but is actually dictated by the water <laughs> and and um, that probably was a, a really, really big non sequitur because I, I didn't really say a whole lot about beer, going to drink beer in England. But I, when I go to England to drink to, well, I don't go to England to drink. I go there usually for, for science. But after the science, I, I have beer in the pubs and I just love it because it's, um, first of all, it's good beer. It's always good beer. It's always, always, always good beer. And secondly, the pub culture in England is just spectacular. It's just, if you're an American and you've never experienced it, it's just so, it's so much fun. It's just, it's so much fun. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, not like our, our pubs where uh, there's not, there's not much character in our pubs sometimes, at least not the ones that I go to here in New York city, not, not as much culture as there is in an Irish pub or in a, in a British pub or in, or, or not as much, uh, character as there is in say uh, a german uh keller uh you know we or a, Ger a german beer hall or a german beer garden i mean there's so much really cool stuff going on there but that that just brings us back to what we said earlier about culture and beer you know cu culture is so tied into beer is so tied into culture and dictating culture that it's it's just hard to deny sure. beer as a as a major player in the way that we deal with the world Wine too, spirits too, marijuana too. But you know, we, 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 that's 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 the that's the that's the fourth book in the in the series uh, <laughs> um, that we're working on now. But that's 
But when you when That's you come to Colorado us. to do your uh, your <laughs> your uh, when you come to Colorado to uh, uh, do your 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 study abroad on marijuana, we will definitely. <laughs> have to uh, well, like but, I said, like it's like I said, my daughter went to UC Boulder, and she kept using the same ATM, and the ATM was in a was in a cannabis shop, and I know what she was doing. So, but I approve. <laughs> so you're working on a uh, a spirits book and i personally love 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 japanese whiskeys right now they're yeah, so yeah. good and i've actually had some american styles of beer that have been made in japan that are really well done and i'm not talking like lagers or something like that i've actually had like an american pale ale made in japan yeah, that yeah. is they're getting so good, good. yeah they're, they're getting really good, um, uh, as are the Italians. The Italians have uh, an amazing craft brew um, uh, scene. The Spanish do. Uh, the French, not so much. The French are stuck on their lambiques and on their sweeter, sweeter beers. And believe it or not, Germany is starting to create a, a craft brew culture, too. Unfortunately, they still can't call it beer. They have to call it something else because of the Reinhardtsgebot. And uh, there's a big movement amongst the uh, microbreweries in, in Germany to get that, to get the Reinhardtsgebot repealed so that they can call their product beer. <laughs> That's, but you're, you're right in, in Japan, you know, they have the traditional um, uh, German uh, lager like Sapporo and Asahi and, and uh, all the others, but, they are starting to do do a lot of microbrewing, and and um, it's not it's not very different from what what you guys are doing as your home brewing and the microbreweries brewers that you know. It's all, all um, craft. It's it, we wouldn't call it craft brewing if there wasn't a craft to it. It's all craft. It's all technology technique, um, and it's all just knowledge about the brewing process. And you know. I think beer unites us as as a species on the planet. It's the one thing that threads through every every culture on the planet is beer. Every culture that's that's ever existed on this planet has made some form of beer, some low alcohol drink that um, is is fun for for uh, their culture to drink. I'm sorry, I interrupted your question, Colpit. <laughs> you you actually answered it. Um, but I will ask, uh, in your spirits book, are you guys studying, like, are you studying Japanese whiskeys as, as part of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole chapter on whiskeys. And, and uh, when we, uh, uh, we commissioned um, uh, guest authors to write the chapters on, on the basics, the whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, uh, eau de vie, and there's one other that I'm missing. Um, uh, it'll come to me. But we 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 uh, commissioned an Australian uh, group to write the whiskey chapter because uh, whiskeys in Australia are are amazing. They're they're they've carried on the British Irish tradition of distilling uh, of, of distilling uh, whiskey, but they've also started to create their own their own little niche. And so uh, the guys who wrote the chapter who are writing the chapter started to write it. And they wrote to me the other day and said, we can't do this in, in the allotted amount of, of 
words you asked us to do it in. And I said, okay, how much is it going to take? And they said, um, another two chapters. And I said, okay, do another two chapters. You know, that whiskey is such an interesting uh, uh, topic. Um, you have to separate it into old whiskey and new whiskey. And, and I, you know, the Japanese whiskey, the Australian whiskey, um, South African whiskey, these are all the new whiskeys that, that are being, being distilled versus the old whiskeys. And, and you actually even have to include um, Tennessee bourbon and Kentucky bourbon in the old whiskey because they were being distilled about the same time that a lot of Irish and, and uh, uh, British whiskeys were being, being distilled. So um, you, get the, you get America in that old category, you know something's up. Something's something's bizarre. <laughs> awesome. Uh, any any other questions, guys? So I was kind of wondering, you know, given the work that you're doing with the distilling book, do you have any suggestions for how to get your state to change the laws so that you allow home distilling? <laughs> that's a great question. That's a great question, and I think that's just around the corner. I, I think that uh, because it's all, you know what happened in America? We, we had this really horrible thing 100 years ago called prohibition. And, and it really, really screwed us up. It really messed up um, our development as, as a country. I really think that it was one of the worst things that could ever have happened to, to our country. Um, you know, not to not to leave out 9-11, the financial crisis or coronavirus, but it was one of the really bad things that happened. And that's because it retarded our uh, culture of drinking and it and it accelerated a really bad aspect of of drinking uh, and of of an alcohol culture. We can't deny that that. Um, we're an alcohol culture. We love alcohol. Every country on this planet, even if it's a strict, you know, no alcohol culture, has alcohol. And, and I think what happened with prohibition, it was 12 long years, I believe. I think it was 12 long years where um, alcohol was, was produced, but not regulated. And by not regulating it, I think it it made the whole industry suffer, and it made all a lot of Americans suffer. Um, you know, uh, I I think that what's going to happen real soon, just like with marijuana, just like with cannabis, and I, I work I work on cannabis genetics and 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 uh, um, uh, uh, the 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 uh, changes that happen in in cannabis over time. Um, I think what's going to happen is uh, um, you're going to be able to buy a still and use it as long as you don't produce more than a certain number of gallons of of hooch, and as long as you don't um, sell it. Now, the one thing about beer that that is different from uh, beer and wine that is different from distillates is that if you don't distill correctly, you can kill somebody. You can kill yourself. Because if you don't distill out the methanol, um, you can really you can kill yourself or cause yourself uh, uh, extreme visual visual um, problems. So uh, that's one reason for it to be regulated a little bit more than say 
home brewing or winemaking. Um, but I think that's going to happen. I, I would love to see it. And again, when I when I was in Australia, I would go to beer brewing uh, uh, outlets where you could buy uh, beer brewing equipment, and they were selling stills. <laughs> they were selling the most beautiful stills you could ever ever think of. And I think that might be true about uh, brewing outlets here in the United States. They're selling stills, but they're they're selling them under the premise that you don't use this to uh, distill alcohol for consumption. You use it to distill that's, alcohol for paint thinner or whatever. But that's I, the way it is. I think it's going to happen. I really do, and I really hope it does. And I really hope the legacy of of prohibition. I mean, I went on a really wide wide. Uh, route here, and I apologize for that, but I really do hope the legacy of prohibition uh, uh, gets wiped away. I mean, that should never have happened, and we'd be a much better culture and a much better society if that had not happened. <laughs> so let's uh, ask uh, some final questions here since we're kind of rolling sure. up on time. Uh, you know, Ed, Kevin, you guys have any more questions? No, I'm good. I appreciate the uh, chance to meet you guys and uh, learn a few things. It's awesome. So, good. Uh, good. Go ahead, Kevin. The German law that you were talking about is that their is that the one that's yeah. referred to as their purity law? Yes, that's the purity law, right. which is so German, right? No. <laughs> 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 I I, heard, I I have. The minute I thought about it, I was like, I was like, man, I should, uh, you know, it just brings to mind a toothbrush mustache, and that's not so good. One, one of my one of my best friends in, in my entire life is a German, and he would laugh at that also. Um, he would he would he would realize that yeah yeah my ancestors. He would probably say yeah yeah my ancestors, they weren't so good. <laughs> I actually, I actually read somewhere that that the purpose of that law was not so much to regulate the production of beer was a, was to preserve wheat, uh, which exactly. was being used for brewing. No, that's exactly right. To, to the, save the, it for the, food food source yeah. and use the animal yeah. feed barley uh, exactly. to make the beer. The, the 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 story is that the wheat the the bread makers were worried that. Beer would be made out of beer. A beer would be made out of wheat, and that's why uh, uh, wheat wheat beer is called Weiss beer, and it's not called beer. It's called Weiss beer, and so they could get away with that. But you're 100 percent right. The bread makers lobbied the lawmakers in Germany and said, "Look, beer is just going to take over all the grain. So you need to define what beer is and make it bar." Early because we make beer out, we make bread out of out of wheat, and we need the wheat. And so the law was passed, and and it's kind of stuck um, uh, for the last God to be five hundred years almost now. It's about four hundred and fifty years. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point, and it it, it also just shows um, how how uh, interesting. Um, Governments try to <laughs> regulate things and and uh, mess up in the process. Uh, it, I, I, uh, I, there's nothing better than a, a German vice beer on a hot summer afternoon. I mean, it's just a it's just the best thing you could ever have. And you know, to 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 the brewers' credits in Germany, 
they just said, ah, screw you. We're going to make, we're going to make wheat beer anyway. And and they did. And um, <laughs> yeah, but they were afraid, they were afraid they were going to use all the, all the uh, wheat for beer. They wouldn't have any wheat to make bread. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Thanks. Well, I want to thank Kevin, Ed, Ian, everybody for uh, showing up and, and, asking rob some questions rob it, i want to thank you for taking the time to uh you know talk to oh, any time oh absolutely to talk anytime. to some of my listeners and ha- having you on the podcast uh was was also great uh i learned a ton by also reading your book and just want to really thank you for taking the time you know out of uh out of hey. out of your quarantine to come talk to us <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I if I can if I can drink a beer with good people and how and and like I say, the book is about the book is about looking at, at life at science through the lens of beer. And you know, I've had a really wonderful evening, really wonderful evening looking through the uh, lens of beer at, at science and life with you guys. It's been really great. I, I I've had a good time. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone okay, for showing me. up. Uh, you bet. It, just a couple things to wind up. If uh, you are a patron of the podcast, um, I will actually do an episode from this recording. So if you want to go through what we talked about, I know Kevin, you missed some of it, so you can you'll be able to listen to it. Kevin's one of our patrons. I know him pretty well. Uh, and uh, and then what we'll do is uh, I will release this probably sometime next week as a patron only episode. Also, cool. If you Send me a link. It, I'll send you a link. I'll, I'll send you a link. Cool. And and then uh, um, every if you look in the show in the not in the show notes, but if you look in the uh, chat window here, I did link to uh, Robert's book here, um, so that if uh, you guys ever want to read it, just you know go check it out. It's on Amazon. It's called The Natural History of Beer. Come to New I, York and I'll sign it. Go, come, come to New, New York, York and I'll, I'll sign, sign it. it. I might I, be a while for that. <laughs> <laughs> True, but yeah. uh, you know what? New York is always calling me, and so uh, you know, it's it, it's definitely I will find my way way there again. Cool. And, All right, cool. Uh, thank you so much. So I want to thank everybody thanks, for guys. coming, and uh, I will talk to you later. Care, thank guys. you, everyone. All right, thanks, guys. I want to thank Rob for taking the time to be on this show and this bonus episode. It was great to talk to him. And every time I've ever had a conversation with him, it's always such a a good time. And he's so knowledgeable. So really a great deep dive when we talk about beer history, wine, spirits, kind of everything. So stick around. We'll see you next month for this bonus episode. And we'll find out who next 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 month's guest is on homebrewing DIY.
Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now